we're back. Hey, John's uh, if you're just tuning in, John, John is uh, John is uh, taking us on a journey, catching up on uh, how would you describe it? The uh, the band stuff you've done in the past, how you got to where you were, uh, eventually with the long winners, and we, we left well, off with you uh, watching a band called Algae with a girl doing interesting stuff with a guitar and singing. Yeah, her name was Stephanie, and and um, the Bun Family players were kind of coming to we we were in some ways the most popular we'd ever been we actually had fans people made jackets uh with our name on it 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 was i think kevin always imagined that we would be rock stars that was his template and and i didn't have a different one at first so and i don't think anybody in america really had a different one that was what was so astonishing about diy and punk rock was that they had a, a vision for themselves as musicians that that wasn't to be rock stars, but that didn't trickle down to me for a while. Um, but to, a lot of people it never trickled down to. And I remember the Offspring became a big band, and the story was that Dexter Holland, the singer, was also some kind of he had a master's degree or whatever, a doctorate in. Oh, he's like a like a like a helmet guy. Is that keeping yeah. separated? Yeah, keep him separated. He was some kind of, I don't know, physicist or chemist or something. And Kevin really identified with that because he had a very strong feeling that he needed to have an advanced degree in order to have fulfilled his commitment to our smarty pants suburban upbringing, right? That, that, that at some point in his youth, he targeted, he, he set a baseline for himself of a master's degree because that was a kind of baseline and all of our friends were getting advanced degrees. And so Kevin went off and got a advanced degree in sociology, conflict resolution. I'm seeing him here. Uh, uh, I believe tell me his name again, Horning, Kevin Horning. Oh, I've seen Dexter Holland here. I'm on a page at uh, online PhD programs.org of uh, the top 10 rock musicians with PhDs. And I'll also use this opportunity to say, I apologize. I didn't mean helmet. I I meant, uh, meant to say uh, bad religion. religion. Sterling Morrison, Milo, Milo from uh, Milo went to college. He super went to college. Mm -hmm. Anyway, continue PhDs. Well, so uh, that all happened along. And that was part of the reason that I felt like maybe I had, uh, maybe being in a band or having Kevin be my collaborator was in some ways like an inhibiting thing for me because he went off and got a master's degree. And during which time I kind of got a, I just started doing drugs because, uh, you know, and I should have been collaborating with people in Seattle, but I didn't, I didn't understand it. So, so we're talking about now 1997, and the Bun Family players got invited to play Bumbershoot. We thought it was like happens to a lot of bands. Um, you you finally got a big show. You got the big show. You got invited to the big show, and we went to um, we went to Bumbershoot, and we were playing in this giant hall, and we showed up, and there was a band called King of Hawaii playing, and they had like uh, fake palm trees on stage, and they were playing surf rock and the audience was enormous and it was going to be by far the biggest show we'd ever played and watching king of hawaii we were like oh man we're going to come on after these guys and we're going to mop up and we also thought 
that because we were playing after King of Hawaii, it meant that King of Hawaii was opening for us. Because this was the if I remember correctly, even then twisted surf rock, at least in the southeast, was super hot. It was super hot. Manor Astroman used to come through town and just put on these fucking insane shows that like would just rock the house. Dick Dale would, would come through town and like people would just go fucking crazy. And that's what this was. Uh I mean it was they had eight hundred people or something. And um they got done. And we and we'd been we'd been playing since 1994, right? We we had a group of fans. We were within our little subculture, like one of the five big bands of anybody we knew, which meant we could get 130 people out on a Thursday night and feel like, wow, it's it's happening. And King of Hawaii got done, and as we were as they were moving their amps off stage and we were moving ours on, we watched 800 people leave the venue because it's a festival and people go from thing to thing. That's, that's a, um, uh, it's difficult to parse that in a way that's positive when, when it's, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's one thing to go like, Oh, the, the, the crowd was a little bit cool to us is very, is a very different thing from like, Holy shit. I just watched the audience our, uh, the interest in us in the audience from an audience be decimated. I watched them walk away. Well, and they were doing it before we'd ever played a note, right? Oh, so, so we didn't, so this feeling we had, like we're about to make 800 fans turned into, because our friends who were all downtown baristas and whatnot, um, they didn't go to Bumbershoot. So we watched 800 people leave a 1,000 capacity venue and be replaced by 70 people. And we played this Bumbershoot show, which we'd been for months, you know, we got invited to play Bumbershoot. And for months, we'd been like, here it comes, baby. We played this show and it was like such a colossal bummer. We went back to the club scene afterwards and we're playing our, you know, our biggest shows ever. But there was a you know a real sense like no the alternative magazines had never written about the Bun family players. It was the stupid name for a band that came out of my personal desire to parody music conventions. It was you know it was a it was in some ways a punk rock gesture because there were lots of bands at the time that had names like that Green Apple Quickstep and you know, cherry popping daddies or whatever, all this, the, all this, um, bare naked ladies. And this, what bun family players was like, kind of like, lol. They, they all sounded like they'd been like generated by a basic program, like, like a random, a random noun <laughs> yeah, generation. Yeah. And bun family players was a name that, 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 that Kevin suggested because we were toying, we were trying to figure out names. We were called three hour shower for a while. <laughs> now that's pretty good. I like we that. Were, we were trying to come up with names and Kevin was like, all these names are stupid. Why not just call ourselves the bun family players? Like it was the dumbest thing you could think of. And I was like, that's the name, you know, it was just, a, it was that you're 25, 26 and just mm-hmm. thinking like you're smarter than everybody. But we had no press. Our fans were hundred percent word of mouth fans. So we played this show and the, and the writing was on the wall. You know, the band just, it was, it, there was some, there was something dark that had come in and it, we'd had a lot of fun, 
But I met this girl, Stephanie, and we started – and after the show, I'm, I know for a fact I've told this story, but they were opening for us. And nobody would ever – I'd never heard of them. They'd never heard of us. And I watched their set, and it was – it was really intriguing. Like she had this incredible voice, this great stage presence. She, she was not like, uh, she didn't play anything amazing on the guitar, but she had a guitar in her hands and was, and had a, had a, I don't know. She just, she just cast a vision. And after their set, but before ours, this is back in the, like, the first band's done and there's 20 minutes before the second band even starts setting up their stuff because shows always went to two o'clock in the morning. And I'm, and she's at the bar getting a drink after her, her first after show drink. And I said, Hey, that, that was amazing. Oh no, wait, 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 wait. I've got this wrong. I watched their sound check. That's mm-hmm. what it and she, and I I was like oh this band's got something which is which is rare you know you don't you play with a lot of bands and you hardly ever go like whoa this band's got something and so she came back to get a drink at the bar that's right before the show mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I'm sitting there because it's one of those bars that people just go drink at too you know you wouldn't you're not necessarily there to see the show if you're drinking at the bar and I said hey you know I heard your song or I saw your song it was really good I liked it a lot. And, you know, she was an attractive lady, and she kind of looked at me and was like, yeah, thanks, you know, thanks, punter, or whatever. Thanks, dude at the bar, bearded dude at the bar, and just gave me, just absolutely, you know, shine me on. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, I kind of walked away somewhat smiling because I was the headliner, and she had treated me like a, like just some sleaze, so a creep is what she treated me like, creep. Mm-hmm. Because she was definitely used to getting creeped on. Anyway, after the show, after she had seen the Bun Family Players play, you know, she came up and she was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry that I, like, blew you off. I was like, don't worry about it. It's just cool that we're, like, we know each other now and it was a cool show. So we got together and we and we played some of my songs together. Because she was like, I want to, you know, I want to try and sing on some of your songs. And we just did acoustic guitar, me on acoustic guitar, the two of us singing. And it just felt like, it felt like magic just to have another voice. Because I'd never had a harmony. No one had ever sung a harmony on Mm -hmm. my songs. And it felt like the first, I'd been playing music now for a long time, but it felt like the first time that I was hearing a sound that I hadn't heard before. Really, a sound I hadn't heard before. Our two voices. And almost immediately, it was like, uh, let's put, we need to put a band together. We're a band. And what was weird was she said, I don't know how to play the guitar. I'm a piano player. I play the guitar in my band because... I like the way it looks or whatever. You know, I need to play the guitar because I'm a front woman and I'm not just going to walk around up there. Um, So I've got other people in the band that play guitar and I'm going to, and I just like, it's plugged in and I play stuff, but Mm -hmm. it's not my, you know, it's, I don't, I don't know how to play it. And I said, 
well, in this band, you're going to be the lead guitar player. And she was like, no, I don't know how to play the guitar. And I was like, exactly. You're going to be the lead guitar player. And you're going to, and I, she, she told me this not very long ago. She said, we were sitting at a bar and I stood up and kind of grabbed her by the shoulders and was like, you are the lead guitarist. Get it, you know, like own it, be it. You're going to get up there and you're going to play lead and it's going to be killer and you're going to blow people away. And she said, you know, she was just like shivering with fear at the prospect. But, but she said, I was so confident about it. And you know what, you know what, Merlin, I was just confident in the concept, right? That whole, that concept that like, you can just do that. You can just say to somebody, pick a, pick a person out of a crowd and say like, you're the lead singer and it, and, and you get lucky or, or just by virtue of saying it, it becomes true. Mm-hmm. And I don't know for whatever reason at that moment in the way the, the bands of Seattle were shaking up. I knew Michael Schilling already. He was this drummer that played in a variety of bands. He was always better than the band he was in. He had a comb over a really, really, really prominent Donald Trumpy ear to ear hairspray lacquered I down. I, I, I can't even imagine it because I only know him from the powerful look that he actually rocked. Yeah. Later on. This, and this was, and it was, I think, the dying days. This was oh, right yeah. before Bald I know. became super great. Normal people. Like like punk rockers thought you were skinhead, and normal people thought you were like in a cult. Yeah, what's wrong with you? Like, why do you? Have, you got, you, got you, you got Yul Brynner and Telly Savalas, maybe a Louis Gossett Jr., but not a lot. There's not a lot of guys who are going to rock a full bald. <laughs> you just named all three of them. I think I'm, I was trying to think who I left out. I'm sure people yeah. will let us know, but it was not. I mean, it's it's such it's so crazy now to look at look at somebody like uh, the ba- what's his name the badge guy the steel guy the badge guy the FX show guy. You know, uh, the, what's it called? What's that show called? The TV show uh, with the bad cops. He was, uh, his whole life changed when he shaved his head. He's like a different she, human being. Well, this happened This happened here in this instance. All through the 90s, Michael had this hair that was tragic. And he'd gone bald at a very young age. And he, I, he, I think, self-identified as kind of a shoegaze kid. Or, you mm. know, he, he, Stuart Copeland was his first drum hero. And there just wasn't a way to be bald in any of those genres, as far as he could tell. And he was, you know, he was friends with all of these guys that had beautiful hair and were beautiful men. And they were part of a scene that it was the kind of first scene where straight dudes were wearing glitter and fingernail polish and, you know, like sparkle, um, a, ki- a new style of glam. The girls were sort of wearing turbans sometimes. I mean, it was, I called them the Egyptians because they had that, they just had that, um, like Orientalist weird co-optation of a thousand different looks to mm-hmm. make a sort of, uh, Erica Badu thing going on, <laughs> except among white Talk about kids. about a look that's hard to pull off. 
really crazy, right? Yeah. And Michael was right in the middle of it with this with this comb you gotta over. Got to pick they, a lane. With, that in that time you had to pick a lane. Though the difficult lane was you shave it all off and go. This is a thing that I do. And what are you gonna do? You gonna wear a fucking baseball hat? No, but that you, didn't really happen. To, until... you, have to, you have to do like an Alan Berg. You got to like do like a full like like a, like cover most of your face. In his case, to cover up a scar. But yeah, 1997 or something before anybody even tried it. There was a guy named Dan Spills in Seattle. He was from Anchorage, who played in a couple of big bands, including Mocktube, and he had alopecia, and so he ended up bald. Mm -hmm. But Dan is like a very confident, fun guy, smart guy. And his baldness was, it went along with kind of the quirkiness of the bands he was in and his own sort of quirkiness, but it stood out. When I, when I was in college, I feel like you were almost more likely to see a girl shave her head than a guy. <laughs> right. Like the, there was like, a Sinead O'Connor, at least. Yeah, I remember there was this girl in one of my poetry, uh, she's in several of my po- poetry classes, and she was, she was actually a really good writer, but she, was, she looked like a wood nymph. She was just this this gorgeous gorgeous little large eyed creature, who was probably like not even five feet tall. And everybody's like, "Oh my God, whatever her name was, I don't remember." Like Tracy, how did you you totally shaved your head? And she says, "Yeah, it's like grass, man. It just grows back." It's like what a bold <laughs> statement in 1988. <laughs> well, I guys I wanted did, long hair. We wanted to look like Michael Stipe. Come on. I dated a girl in '88 who had who had cut her hair. You know who. Had, who shenaded her hair and it was exactly the same situation. She was like yeah. hippie love child and just like, Oh man, she was. Yeah. But so Michael had just somebody, his, his little tight group of friends had finally convinced him like, just shave it. You'll be happier. And it was happening. People were shaving their heads. Michael Stipe is a great example of somebody who quit trying. He's got a good shaved head. Hair. He's so lucky. And so Michael did it. And it kind of transformed him. And I knew him. He'd been, he was a Bun Family Players fan. He'd been following my progress. We used to have coffee together and he would say, you know, I think you're the songwriter in town that <clears throat> I most identify with. I want to like, I hope one day we can make music together. And Michael brought in this guy, Bo, <clears throat> who was a bass player. He played in a band called Saverna Park. And Saverna Park was very much everybody in the band wearing uh, glitter and fingernail polish. And they were playing super duper pop punk. And their claim to fame was that they were on MTV's The Real World. As a, you know, there, there was some scene where Seattle, where real world Seattle, the kids went to a club and Saverna Park was the band that was playing. So they were on TV. And they had a lot of fans. Uh, in the sort of pop punk, I, I, they were all wearing black jeans. You know, it's that that school. Um, we called them Romulans because they're they all wore Romulan haircuts, like black <laughs> bowl cuts with sharp right. with pointy uh, sideburns. And you know, there's actually in the song "Medicine Cabinet Pirate." There's a reference to Romulan. I was gonna ask. I was gonna because I know you're a Star Trek fan, but oh god, that's okay. But, but that's a reference to that style of of mid late nineties indie punkers that all looked, you know, they were like totally rocking that straight across bangs black hair look. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Bo and Michael came in, and Stephanie and I were working on these songs, and they were like, "We're going to, uh, you know, we're going to be in." 
we're going to help you guys make a record. That's what they said. They didn't say they were going to be in the band. They said they were going to help us make a record. And I think I still had a vision of making a record that, that created a scene that got me out of Seattle, that, that became my job, that made me a, made me the voice of a generation. You know, I still believed that, and I maybe believed it more even because my experience with the Bun family players was that I tried to have the Beatles in a hard day's night. <laughs> it hadn't panned out. And now I just wanted to get some good musicians together and make a record. And, and it would, uh, and maybe that's what it should have been all along. So we started to mess around. We went into the studio with Phil Eck and we made its five song demo. Mm-hmm. And we played our first show opening for a band called, um, uh, Sycophant, who were friends of mine. And Sycophant was a big band at the time. It was a kind of a sold out show in a club and we were second of three. And as soon as we took the stage and, and lit up our guitars, it was clear that we, we were the thing that I'd been waiting for. We were a band where all four people were on the same page. And you could tell from the, from the second we started playing, from the audience response, that we were making a music that, that ha- no one had heard before. Mm-hmm. We were making a music that um, had its own sound. We weren't imitating anybody. And we became enormously popular right away within a very small universe. Again, if we had gone to Bumbershoot and opened for King of Hawaii or played after King of Hawaii, nobody would have stayed. But within this this little club universe in Seattle, speaking from the Bun Family Players era where it took me three or four years to build up 120 people at a show, the Western State Hurricanes played our second show and there were... 200 people there to see us and it felt like we might as well be um you know this might might as well be like nirvana's first show at the paramount or something it just felt like so much energy and bo and michael immediately dropped the pretense that they were just helping us make a record and were like we're in this band bo left saverna park which felt like a crazy career move Hmm. but it was a situation where the four of us were in competition with each other. Huh. And you, you said this earlier that bass players tend to be showboats. The good ones. <laughs> the good ones, right. And Bo was a great bass player and a total showboat. Like a showboat, he wasn't like up at the front of the stage wagging his tongue his style of showboat was he stood he stood his ground on the stage and looked kind of nonplussed. <laughs> he didn't really dance. He didn't really, you know, he had a smile. He wasn't, he didn't look mean. But what Bo was doing was playing the bass. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm thinking of, I know it's not the same, but I'm thinking of John Entwistle. Where like, uh, you could just, he's just, he would be so still and just yeah. doing the craziest shit. And Ant Whistle looks severe, whereas Bo looks very approachable. He did. He looks like a bird of prey with a water bottle. <laughs> For sure. 
or two, two water bottles. <laughs> but, Bo, but his fingers, his right hand would freak oh, me right the fuck out. You've listened to John Entwistle bass part soloed. You know have I you? have. Yeah, I know you Him have. Him and Paul, I will go, I will go and listen to while my I've, I might have sent you this while my guitar gently weeps, the bass part on that, which unless you're really listening, you would never know. But you go and listen to something like what's the song from Live at Leeds that's so good that he sings that opens Live at Leeds? Oh, um You know the song I mean. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. sings. But you know, exactly. And so so you got you got a laconic guy? Well, I mean, he was, he was, he certainly was smiling and engaging. No, what his thing was, was he didn't ever, he, if he could avoid playing the root note of a chord, <laughs> sure, because yeah. the root note, uh, was too obvious. But also, like, if, if I, if my song went dang a dang a dang a dang a dang a dang a dang a, Bo's bass part would go boom, but da dum, but da dum, but da dum, but da dum, but he had his, he was creating separate rhythms. Yeah separate parts all together magic and and so the songs were just like what like i was doing this and he's doing that and then michael would follow or according to Bo, michael never followed anybody michael's kind of in his michael also a very showy drummer just playing basically at the start of a set he would start playing a fill and the fill would go until the end of the set and sometimes a little bit over it was very loud too. He could he could very, be a very very loud drummer, and also like really, he would really he would really fill a room. Amazing time, you mm-hmm. know. Ama- he just he never he never slowed. He never flagged. He never. I think it's something like never, I mean something like cinnamon. Where I still you've explained. I think you've explained what the fucking rhythm on cinnamon is to me on half a dozen occasions, and I still can't I can't count that song. I know it's easier probably than it seems, or simpler than it seems, but I still have no fucking idea what's happening in that song. Well and Michael's not a he he would Is it three four against four four? What's what's three, happening? Three three against four, yeah. Oh shit, it's so fucking weird. We'll talk about Stuart Copeland, right? I mean synchronicity, that's where it comes from. And Michael taught himself to play the drums on his pillows. Like he didn't That was his that was his tennis racket. Yeah, his tennis racket. He'd sit sit on his bed with a with drumsticks and a, and his pillow and and learn all the police stuff. But he didn't. He never. You know, he's one of those like I never had a lesson, guys. And he'd never been in a situation because he was the best drummer in any band he was in. Nobody ever tried to restrain him. Mm-hmm. And I didn't try to restrain him because it sounded like music to me. And what was amazing about Stephanie was her melodic sense. She was a classical piano player and her, her harmonic sense was very, mm-hmm. uh, your brain gets wired different. If you're like a very good pianist, like I mix, it makes guitar players look like such fucking idiots. It's like, we're just, it's like, we're just like hitting a wall with a ball peen hammer compared to what a, a pianist is doing. Like I'll sit there so, and watch a YouTube video where somebody will show like there's that that famous Leonard Leonard Bernstein one which is like here's like all these different levels to how you could play this arrangement and you're like I don't even understand how your brain can work like that. I have no idea. So you've got to hear and feel music very differently if you're a really I don't say piano player like a gifted pianist. It's a different frame of mind. Where well, I, I could go like, oh, I think that's a G and then a D with added F sharp. And they're like, well, yeah, but then there's this inversion in this thing. And this this note that's sort of like hinted at with this particular inversion. And you're like, you're from another planet. Her thing was just her melodies, her melodic desire was not to be sweet and not to resolve. She didn't 
she did not give you a Beatles harmony. She didn't give you a Simon and Garfunkel harmony. She, uh, in a way, like her harm, her harmonic nature was was almost metal. Um, she would get in close on on my vocal, and instead of doing like a Sean Nelson harmony, where she's if if you listen to Sean Nelson's harmony parts soloed, they sound crazy because Sean is leaping from one sweet harmony to another. That's and what's so, so his, bewildering about the beginning of car parts. It's like how many vocals, who's high, who's low, which part is a organish keyboard sound. That's why that song is still so breathtaking to me, is when that first when that first stacked chord of singing and music happens. It's utterly like emotionally overwhelming to me, not least because the bewildering part, which is you would think Sean sings the high part on that, right? You would think, yeah. well, not you, but you know what I mean? The listener would go, oh, obviously Sean's singing the high part. But then you're like, no, wait a minute. John's singing the high part. Sean's singing the low part. And there's this thing that turns out to be like a squeaky organ. And you're like, what, what is that? It's, again, different brain. Well, Sean would do, if I went up, he would go down. If, if I went down, he would go up. And Stephanie didn't do that. Stephanie got in real close at some, you know, sh- uh, at a third or a f- or a uh, ninth or something. She would find a place against my vocal, and then would shadow me in a way that I can't do. You know, if you if I'm singing along to a song on the radio and I get in close against them on a harmony, mm-hmm. and I know where their vocal melody is going to go, I can't stay close because as they start to move, I don't know how to keep up with their thing at that, at that immediate distance. Like if you Mm -hmm. listen to her, it's one thing, it's one thing to sing a fifth and it's another thing to do. It's called close harmony for a reason. Try singing along with exactly one of the Everly brothers. It's really, really hard. Well, and she would start at the beginning of a part and sing along with me to the end. Right. She's not just throwing harmonies on the, on the, on the sweet bits. Right. She's, co-lead vocals in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, so we started playing shows. We had this kind of crazy combination. We had this, this drummer that every other band in, in our scene really envied, uh, a bass player who was, it was very creative and very thing about Bo was he's very cool. Like mm-hmm. he didn't get Bo never broke a sweat type of thing. And he was cute, cute guy. Uh, Stephanie was, was our lead guitar player and was playing. She was telling me the other day that she remembers the first time that she played a lead on a Western state song where she went from one string to another, <laughs> like the first five or six songs, all of her lead parts were just moving up and down one string with one finger as you do <laughs> yeah, because she didn't, that was all she felt confident doing. And then she like, came up with a part where she switched to two to a separate string. And like, as she was coming up to that moment, she was like, here we go. We're going to jump to the, we're going up to the D string. And Uh she did the jump and she was like, yes, you know, she was walking me through all this. Uh, And we had a lot of success, right? We got written about in the paper, the new music editor, the stranger hated us and wrote, Articles disparaging us every week that only brought more people to our shows because everybody <laughs> hated him. Um, we got oh, offered man. we got offered a recording contract with Sub Pop. You know, in the first month or two of being a band, uh, 
we were we were cool. We got invited to cool parties, but we didn't. I mean, we didn't care. We worked. We practiced three, four days a week. We practiced for hours and hours at a time, and the competition was between us. Everybody in the practice studio was trying to make the song better in their way. So Bo didn't care what I had in mind. Bo heard my song and was like, I'm going to tear this apart. I'm going to make this, I'm going to make this better and I'm going to work my ass off to improve this song with my bass playing. And Stephanie she was working six hours a day, six days a week, trying to get up to the level that she thought this band was at. Wow. Wow. This, I mean, you're describing this all over this, this long arc, but like this feels so different in numerous ways from your other adventures with bands. Different. I mean, with, real, with real different, one- how, how it felt, how it sounded. And then like, it sounds like all of you um, adapted to the idea that this could be great. Immediately. Immediately. Mm -hmm. And like Stephanie had a kind of thing she did on stage. Michael plays every drum part as a march. Like Michael just has this way of take, you could give him any song and he could just put a march into it. You know, like he will go there with his fills. And Stephanie just unconsciously, started to actually march on stage while she was playing her guitar. <laughs> she would just march in place. Uh-huh. And and it was very striking. You know, she was a she was kind of a, a she she fashioned herself as a sort of um what would you describe her look? She did this thing which was a, you know, a little bit Liz Fair, a little bit. Who was the, who was the girl that was famous for wearing glasses? The lead, Lisa the girl, Loeb. Lisa Loeb, right? Mm-hmm. She was this. She was kind of a hard rock Lisa Loeb. Um, you know, she would wear vintage T-shirts that um, that had you know that were just like super fuzz big muff or whatever. But but she just combat boots and and. Um, and horn rim glasses, right? A, a mm-hmm. thing that that it's just so striking when you see it, and really was at the time, that communicates like, I'm the fucking lead guitar player in this band. And she did inhabit it. Mm-hmm. I think she never was 100% confident because she was working outside of her, she was always working outside of her comfort zone. But boy, on stage, you'd never seen anything like it. And then... You know, at the center of this band is me, and I was like so full of rage and emotion and just like just internal conflict, self-loathing. I've been sober for three years, maybe. Hmm. Um, so I was just in the I was I was just a storm of feeling, but it was all a storm of feeling and that was coming out. Um, like if you squeezed a hard boiled egg in your fingers where the, it was just this, I was, I was extremely ratcheted down too. I mean, it was, I, I was super intense because I didn't have, there was no healthy outlet for my emotion except for screaming into a microphone. 
scream singing or not, but I wasn't screaming. I was fucking just singing loud. And so in the moment, in the room, there was not a feeling that the four of us were friends. There wasn't really even a super strong feeling that we liked each other Hmm. as people. We all wanted not not to be big stars, although we did want that, but we wanted to be making this music and we wanted to blow people away. We wanted to blow each other away. You know, this was a, this was a thing where the four of us came together and, and were throwing everything into this. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't necessary that we like each other. Like it wasn't necessary that we um, socialize. With Which is other. also one of the secrets of the sports stuff. Like I looked at the sports guys from a previous episode. I looked at the sports guys and said, well, I wish I had that kind of conviviality. But I mean, I can look at my own local basketball team and go like, sometimes those guys super don't get along. <laughs> and they somehow find a way to have all five people handle the ball on this assist. And it's real good. And sometimes <laughs> some is good. Sometimes it's not, but they're trying to outdo each other. They're playing, they're playing a very high level game <laughs> and it's not necessarily about friendship in the long run. That's a very, no. that, what an interesting idea to watch something like that. I mean, there's some kinds of bands like fame, like again, one of my favorites I'm always bringing up is Silkworm where by the time Silkworm was starting to break a little bit, um, well break when they, they were starting to kind of get big. And I think they were on Matador at the time, but like famously when they, when I saw them in uh, Tallahassee, they were in their wearing black suits phase. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, they were a very like passionate band, but Joel R.L. Phelps was so fucking over it. If memory serves, he did a reverse frip in his black suit. I believe he would sit on a chair facing the wall when they played. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You can tell like these guys are making this amazing, angry music, but like there, there's some dynamics in these relationships that is, it ain't friendly. No, and and we didn't dislike each other. You know, we didn't. Um, but it wasn't based on friendship. It was based no. on the music. It started with the music, right? And the it and the, and the not, possibilities. It was not the Beatles in a Hard Day's Night. We were not um, at the end of the show. We each went to a different place in the bar and talked to the people that wanted to talk to us. We did not stand there, arm in arm. Um, you know, can't wait to get out of here to go to the bar. And the thing is, we did go to the bar afterwards. We did meet up just to talk about the band. But you didn't but we retire t- to the treehouse to talk about the, the next phase of your like, oh my God, oh my God, like we're so great, right? We would talk about what we were going to do, like mm-hmm. what we were going to try and accomplish musically. But what that also meant was that there was, you know, I had a lot of arrogance, but my arrogance was matched by the arrogance of my bandmates. Bo thought he was the most interesting thing in the band. And Michael always thinks he's the most interesting thing in the room. Um, Stephanie was in some ways, maybe the most interesting thing in the room, but she was also like very not ambitious as much as just like she was busting her ass. And 
so there wasn't a um, – they weren't following me. I mean, they were dependent on me. I was the front man. I wrote the songs. But Bo was one of those bass players I'm, I'm very confident that was like, the most interesting part of any song is the bass line. And he said the reason he wanted to be in this band so badly is that we had we were the only band that had lyrics. It's like, that, it's like somebody who's raised on a radish farm saying, like, the only thing I care about in salads is radishes. Is a radish, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were offered this recording contract with Sub Pop. I kind of famously uh, blew it or um, I didn't blow it because I didn't want it. I felt like it was I felt like Sub Pop at that point was kind of beneath our dignity. Um, I really did. I felt like sub pop. Yeah, that's a thing from the nineties, but you know, what have they released lately? Like the scud mountain boys, Mm -hmm. like that's great and everything, but, but, um, this band is too good for that. It was, uh, it was a musical confidence that we were doing something that was creating a scene. And it was, and it was something no one else was doing. It was, it turns out now, it was bridging post-grunge and indie. It was both things simultaneously. We were loud. We had big amps. We played big, big, big chords. But it had the song structure, the, like, the anti-pop song structure of Built to Spill. Every song had 10 parts. There was a lot of, I mean, my guitar, even though it was big, it was often cleaner than most, you know, it was kind of a pavement level of clean sometimes. So we went into the studio and it was the the most ill-conceived thing, I think, looking back at my life, the most ill-conceived thing I ever did. Stephanie had gotten a job at the guitar store. Now, if you want to think about how radical that was in 1998, that, that this, uh, Lisa Loeb through Led Zeppelin girl was not only the lead guitar player in a band in Seattle, which as far as I could tell, she was the only one that wasn't in an all girl band. You know what I mean? Like she was the only, it was a dude band with a dude sound, and she was front and center. You could have a, you could have a girl uh, playing bass, and she should be named Kim. Uh-huh. Um, you could very occasionally uh, get a girl playing drums. You could certainly have a girl playing second guitar. But like, yeah, it's it, 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 at the time, and this all sounds silly. Why am I saying this bullshit? Well, go back and look around. Like that's that's what was there. That's how it was. And she was also singing co-lead vocals. Like it was, Mm -hmm. she was extraordinary. And then she went to the fucking guitar store, the (laughs) trading musician, the (laughs) dudest of all dude things and got a job selling guitars. And you, all you had to do was a guy would, you know, you just watch it hour after hour. Guy would walk in and be like, yeah, I'm looking for Les Paul. And she would go, well, let me take you over and show you some Les Pauls. Mm -hmm. And the, the guy would be like, what? I mean, yeah. I don't want to talk to the receptionist. I want to like talk. And she would, you know, she, she just, she dealt with it with such cool. Like she just didn't give a fuck. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but so a guy that worked at the trading musician by the name of Scrappy, this <laughs> dude 
that was just a fucking mook, you know, just a, just a fucking dude. Uh-huh. No more, no less. Starts talking to Stephanie at work about how he's got a recording studio in his basement. And or, or he didn't say his basement. He's built a recording studio, a professional grade recording studio yeah. in a space, you know. And he uh, he's willing to record our debut record for free in order to get exposure. Mm. And at this point, we've got we've got juice in Seattle. We could have gone to pretty much anybody and made made a deal with them to record a record. Chris Walla had come to us and said, as soon as I'm done with the first death cab record, I really want to make the first Western state record. Oh my gosh. In our, in, in our studio in Bellingham. And in the same exact way that I, that I kind of poo pooed the sub pop contract, I was like, that's sweet of you kid, but we're looking for a little bit of a bigger sound Uh than your death cab for cutie sound. (laughs) As much as I like, I could feel, I could hear the scare quotes around that. Yeah, <laughs> but this guy, Scrappy, somehow, and I, for the life of me, I cannot get back inside that uh, that moment. And I honestly think that the that the the only operative word was free. I will record you for free. And somehow I thought that. Getting recorded for free, well, clearly was better than paying money for it Mm -hmm. because basically all recordings were the same. We were a great band. You couldn't fail to record us because recordings were just put up. This is before I'd made a record, right? I'd never made a record at this point. Mm -hmm. You put up microphones and you record the band, right? I mean, what else is there? That's clearly what's happening on a ZZ Top record or a Jane's Addiction record. They put up, the band was good, and then they put microphones on them and recorded them. So why would you spend all this money doing it when a guy is willing to do it for free? That's that's really stupid, but the logic makes sense. Like, those other bands need all that sweetening. Or something. Or something. But but, but in your case, why would we go and spend, you know, $5,000... Cause like like we're good if they if they, if these microphones get set up right and it gets recorded to tape we're good we're good I mean at the time I was making nine hundred dollars a month I thought I was like rolling in it uh, my rent was three hundred and fifty dollars a month and I and I think we paid two hundred dollars a month for the practice studio I didn't drink anymore. So my main expenses were oh and I got my coffee for free because I knew every barista in town. Oh. So my wow. main expenses You're set. were uh, yeah, I had to pay for cigarettes and I had to pay for milkshakes, diner food, you know. But if you're making $900 a month, $5,000 to make a record or even $2500 just oh God, feels yes. like where are we going to get that money? <clears throat> So we go into this guy's studio, and it is in the basement of his house. It's in the middle of winter. It's freezing cold. But he's got 10 drum kits in his basement and guitar amps stacked against the wall. It looks like it's supposed to look. And on the desk there, he's got a big reel-to-reel machine. And so walking in, it's like, yeah, all right, it's a recording studio. 
like I've, you know, I've been in a real one a couple of times. I made a demo tape with Phil Eck. I, you know, the Western state hurricanes tried to, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the bun family players tried to make some demos on a dat player. Like I got no experience here. Mm-hmm. He sets up his mics. We start to play. I don't like scrappy. He is not a fun person or a friendly person or what I would think of as a interesting person. He had these crazy rules like his wife got home from work at six and she needed the house to be quiet. So we had to stop recording at 6 p.m. every day. Hmm. His studio was all the way out in Ballard. So we had to like get out to Ballard every day. Um, Like I say, it was freezing in there. And so we recorded this album and it was not a fun process, but we were a great band at the time. And so we just, you know, we just went for it on every track and we'd been invited to go to South by Southwest, which was the go to go to, um, it was like getting invited to Bumbershoot for the Bun Family Players, except bigger. This was a mm-hmm. national event. Well, yeah, and it, it was before it was you know all about computers and entrepreneurs. It was like it was one of one of the bands in Tallahassee got invited to South by Southwest, and it was a huge deal. Huge deal. It was like it was like you know not not exactly getting called up to the big game, but not too far off. No, only the top rank of Seattle bands got invited to go to South by Southwest. Mm-hmm. I had never even heard of it before being invited to go to it. And we were going to try and finish this album in time to have it made and take it to South by Southwest, at which point we were certain we were going to hand it out to a bunch of people from Sony, BMG, mm-hmm. uh, Universal, and and whatnot. And, and this was it. This was where the record deal came from. So November, December, we're in this freezing rain. The band was only six months old. And we were making this record. And we got, we weren't done. We didn't finish the album. But we had enough tracks that we could, we were going to mix them and master them and take them down there as like a five song demo. So we get these tracks. And this just to be clear here, this is different from the Phil Eck demos. Different from the Phil Eck demos. This okay. is, the, these are the scrappy, scrappy sessions. Demos. Scrappy demos. <laughs> scrappy And they're not, they're not meant to be demos. No, this, this, is an, <laughs> this is an album. This is a real studio, the scrappy sessions. So I take these tracks to a man named Rick Fisher. And Rick Fisher was the, uh, the main engineer for the Steve Miller band post- 70s like abracadabra uh, he was the abracadabra era Mm -hmm. steve miller band uh like archivist and recording engineer and this guy who had decided he was going to get into mastering which is a which is a, a black art it's an arcane process in record making where you mix and you mix a record it's all done and you take it to this magic person Bob Ludwig who runs the record through some boxes and turns <laughs> some big knobs in incremental little clicks and clicks and clicks 
it might as well to me it might as well be going to a witch doctor for a blessing it's exactly what it it's is. it's like wait a minute what did you just do i i not only i i know not only can't hear what you're talking about but i can't even see on the meters what you're talking about but the difference that's between why i mentioned record- bob ludwig i mean like there's that those names like there's only so many names you see in certain jobs and remember but like it is it's the black art you go to the person who's gonna make this sound good and with with cds it got even harder because there's no compression i mean there's no you know what i mean there's no analog compression with cds like you got to get this thing up to this loudness point but then they all got to be the same and it's like I, I don't even fucking understand how it works but i know it's it's hugely important it's crazy and mastering is the entire album right they master each song but they're also mastering the record mm-hmm. and the difference between an unmastered record and a mastered record when you put them on the stereo is night and day mm-hmm. but like you say beats the shit out of me what's happening and i sit on the couch while my records are being mastered and we talk about things and and you know, and the mastering engineer says, well, what about this? And I go, hmm. And then he clicks the knob one tiny little click, and he's like, what about that? And I go, yeah, that is You ever get your eyes examined? You ever get your eyes examined, and they do the thing where you eventually get to the point where they say, they say better or worse, better or worse, and they show you two. And, like, my media thought always is, okay, I, we must be close because now he's just seeing if I'm lying. I don't yeah, know why right. I would lie, but every time I've ever gone to the eye doctor, I get to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm pretty sure he's gaslighting me to find out if I'm some kind of like a, uh, I don't know, a, a, a bad person. And, 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 but that's the entire thing with what you're describing is like it and all, the, the it's eye, all better or worse, better or worse. It's like it all literally sounds the same to me. The eye exam thing is like there get, there always gets to a point where it's like, well, neither of these are good and they're not different from one another. Or I mean, they're different from one another, but neither is better. And the eye exam person always says, like, well, just pick the one that seems... And then, like, a total dick. Then they flick to the one that's in perfect focus. And you're like, why did we do that last one? What was that? <laughs> now, of course, it, you know, you know this one works. You knew before you asked me that this works. But the mastering is a magic. It really is magic. And I at this taking this record to Rick Fisher, it was the first time I'd ever been in a mastering studio. I didn't know what that was either. And I remember sitting in the chair... We're on our way to South by Southwest. I just need to get this record mastered. And I knew a guy who had a CD maker. And I should say that that Phil Eck demo uh, that we recorded six months prior, we put out as a cassette tape. Mm-hmm. And this was going to be a CD. Like this year, 1998-99, was the year when... Bands went from cassette tapes to CDs mm-hmm. as demos or as things to sell at shows. Yeah, and my whole life, you know, you bought us, you bought a cassette tape at a show, uh, and so like, like getting it onto a CD was such a black art. My band's first oh. CD was ninety eight, second CD was ninety nine, and like, but it was such a black art. And unfortunately, our second CD was not very well mastered, and some of the songs were really loud, and some were really quiet. And I hate it till this day. Sounds unmastered. Yeah, now now I hear the difference. Thanks. Still. No. Yeah, no, but you're right. It was like, because cassettes, you'd sit there and dub a bunch of cassettes and you'd sell them for five bucks or three bucks or whatever. Yeah. And this was, you had to go down to the to the edge of town in a warehouse and there was a guy that was making CDs with a crazy <laughs> machine that he bought. Anyway, I, I'm sitting in the studio with Rick Fisher and Rick is listening to the songs and he's saying, and Rick Fisher Let's be honest. Uh, I've known Rick Fisher for a long time since this because Rick Fisher started 
uh, a mastering studio called RFI. And he tried to, and we tried to work together with the long winters. And eventually Rick hired Ed Brooks, who uh, took over mastering for him gradually. Ed Brooks is a great man and one of my favorite people in the world. He's the guy that does all the mastering for all the Pearl Jam um, live stuff that they that they put out. Mm-hmm. Ed is just a genius. Uh, Rick is an asshole. And Rick and I used to fight during the long winter's days. This is my first experience of Rick. And he was listen, he was ma- trying to master this thing. And he was like, um, uh, there's not much I can do with this. This mm-hmm. record is recorded so the, badly. The, the scrappy sessions. The scrappy sessions. Oh God! That there's just you know, not, that's not what you want to hear. I can't really get it to sound good. I don't. There's no technology in the world. And I was sitting there saying, like, well, um, what do you need from me? Like, what can I get you that uh, will help you? Or like, and he's like, well, there's nothing you can get me. This. <laughs> Was I, was, I was watching. I was watching, rewatching some old Deadwood last night, and it, it would be like basically going to the guy saying, "You know what? Your claim's not going to play out." And you're like, <laughs> "Oh, so should I get some uh, some different uh, pans and pails?" And be like, no, "You're you're not understanding. Like you yeah, got played. I'll swear engine played you. Like <laughs> there's no gold here." And you're like, "Oh, okay. So like, <laughs> what are you going to do? Buy different land." <laughs> That's you. Here's you. You. This is you. Go find other land. Because <laughs> that's so depressing. After all that fucking work and driving and being cold, to hear that the, the, the dude is not going to be able to do anything with it. That's the worst. I didn't know what I was doing. And it turned out nobody in the band did either. I don't know about drum sounds. I don't know about bass sounds. I didn't know about tape machines. I was just still just like my songs and here we are and we're a great band now and it's proved by the crowd the crowds we're getting and the and the and the fact that people love what we're doing and i can hear that it's great what do you mean this record doesn't sound good and rick fisher said the drums sound like cardboard boxes and the bass isn't even on the record isn't even on the tape really um, I, so, so just to trace this back, if, if you're not a super dumb uh, nerd, um, so it, it's something where, like, you know, in a lot of cases, if you didn't like the mix of the way stuff uh, right. had been mixed, you could go back and change the mix. But he's saying it was poorly recorded. Well, so here's what I learned later. Scrappy, his professional recording studio, was based around a 16-track quarter-inch tape recorder. Oh, and half inch is the standard. Uh, well, two inch is the standard. That's the big, the big, uh, the big gray boxes. The big gray box that has the big tape. Um, oh shit! So there's you break. Oh shit! And it's almost like with a four track, in the sense that you're putting way. You're trying to get a lot of information onto too small a piece of real estate. Kind of. You basically have in a. It's in not going to sound like a revolver. No. In a fa in a, in a like an eight track quarter inch would be at the time a kind of prosumer level thing. Um, a a twenty four track two inch it became kind of the industry standard in the in the kind of mid seventies. It was a sixteen track two inch. 
So 16 tracks of information spread across two-inch wide tape. But this was 16 tracks of information spread across a quarter inch of tape. <laughs> oh, God. oh, my God. Meaning that it doesn't matter how well you played. It doesn't matter if it were mic'd and recorded. Well, it doesn't matter how well it was mic'd and recorded. You're, you're, you're basically trying to do, you're trying to do a very, very large Baroque painting with an eight bit video game system. There's, there's just less, not enough, there's not enough information on there to do anything with. There's less tape. There's less space of actual tape than on a four track cassette recorder. Yeah, or like like if you do it like in a, the ratio if, of like if you slit track, if you slit yeah, the tape yeah, yeah. by ten. Well, I didn't know that. <laughs> that's why you. That's why you hire a scrappy to take scrappy care of said, that. I've got sixteen tracks, and I was like, "Wow, that's you know, that's how that's as many tracks as they used to on Night at the Opera or whatever." Yeah. And so, Rick Fisher did what he could. We put some of the Phil X stuff and some of the scrappy stuff together on a CD. Rick Fisher could not make them sound anything close to one another. Cause, cause the Phil X stuff was recorded on 24 track, two inch proper <laughs> big boy tape. <laughs> well, uh. so we went to South by Southwest uh, and it was a really hard trip. We didn't have a van. We did. I didn't have the good sense to rent a van. Stephanie's mom had a minivan. We took the middle seat out and laid our amps and guitar cases flat on the on the f- floor of the minivan and covered them with pillows and blankets. Ugh. Oh God! And drove down to Austin. Um, on the drive down, sort of at the end of a day when the sun was going down, I pulled over at a rest stop somewhere in Eastern Oregon or or uh, Nevada, and I said, well, that's about it for today. Let's roll out our sleeping bags here somewhere under these picnic tables and get some sleep. Tomorrow's a big day. Mm -hmm. And the other three were like, what? Like, my sense is that the other three members of the band had never stayed in a motel. It was, they were already scared of the roughing it that would be involved in staying at a roadside motel that we didn't know what it was going to be. Wow. And my thing was up until that point, all traveling that I'd done when it was time to go to sleep, I unrolled my sleeping bag under a bush. Mm-hmm. I'd never stayed in a motel either, but because it was a luxury, it was too much. It was too great an expense. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, no, we're not going to sleep outside. And I was, I was like astonished. Well, what do you mean? Where are we going to sleep? We don't know anybody in Nevada. And they were like, in a hotel. Mm-hmm. And it was, we'd been a band now for, for seven months. And this was news to me that I, that, that I was going to have to get hotels for people with what money? Yeah. So I did, I got them hotels, but I was like, I was shocked. Uh, yeah. And they were shocked. I think shocked that they had to share hotel rooms with each other. I mean, I got a hotel room that had two beds in it. And um, 
and I I don't remember whether we moved all the stuff in from the van at night. I think we probably did. Anyway, we got to South by Southwest. We played our show. And after the show, and the show was a success, after the show, there was a big line of people that wanted to talk to us, and they were all waving their business cards up from their record labels. And we were handing out our CD. And I started collecting these business cards and talking to these label heads. And I realized that they were all label heads and band managers at the exact same level that the Western State Hurricanes were. Like mm-hmm. they were not from Universal Records or Sony. <laughs> it's like that they line were, in it's like the line in Roger and Me where the sheriff who's ev- evicting everybody says, "Don't marry anybody poorer than you." Exactly, it was exactly that. Don't like they are hoping that the Western State Hurricanes will be the thing that helps their fledgling label. A little bit like Scrappy. Like Scrappy. Exactly. Yeah, you're, you're, you're sticking to the big time. And it was a disappointment. Oh shit. And so we, and then we, then we had a tour, our first tour, which was with Death Cab for Cutie on their first headlining tour back from South by Southwest to Seattle. And we played, you know, six, seven dates. We played Bottom of the Hill. We played Spaceland. We played all the, you know, all the venues that we would later come play triumphantly as the long winters. And by the end of the tour, we were exhausted. We hated each other. And Nothing had worked out. This record that we made sounded terrible. Nobody, it sounded terrible. We didn't want to listen to it. The trip to South by Southwest had not produced any great leads. The tour was hard. We didn't enjoy, I mean, and mostly it was that I didn't understand that I needed to provide for these people. Mm-hmm. It, was my, it was my band. I needed to make them comfortable that I didn't see that as my job. We, we all were so independent of one another mm-hmm. that I was like, well now at what point am I the one that has to pay for everything? It was like, well, somebody has to, the band has to. So, so right at the point when you are most stuck in these spaces, physical and mental together or automotive, um, it's also when some some things that maybe should have been fundamental discussions are are going to come up, right? Because we, I didn't even know about a drum sound, let alone um, how to manage a band. So there's like a mutual, not mutual necessarily, but like there's a shared sense of like disappointment in each other by the end. Well, it was just like because you're going to oh, blame wait. you're going to blame each other eventually, right? I mean, you get well, to the point where it's like, well, that didn't work out and now somebody's going to Monday morning quarterback that into, well, you know, the, the the blame game about why the drums weren't good and we only met a bunch of losers in Austin. It was what happened was we got back to town and Stephanie and I both said, well, we need to fucking double down. We need to go back into the studio. We need to write and write a bunch of new songs. We need to take another, we need to take another, uh, swipe at this Mm -hmm. and this time get it right. And we got back to town. We went into the, cause after we got back from the tour, we didn't, you know, we, we were like, let's take a couple of weeks off. We don't need, uh, to get right back at it. Cause that was hard, mm-hmm. but here we were, it was spring. Now the birds were chirping and we all met at the practice studio and we went in 
And I said, okay, I've got a couple of new songs. Cause I was writing like crazy. I was so inspired at this point in my life. And we sat and we, we worked on some new songs. We practiced for a couple of hours and then we took a break and we all kind of went out in front of the practice studio and smoked some cigarettes. At which point Bo said, um, I should tell you that I'm leaving the band. Hmm. And Michael said, I am too. Oh, wow. And they were like, we talked about it and we kind of just don't want to be in the band anymore. And Stephanie and I were just like, what are you talking about? We've all tried to be in bands our whole lives. And now we're in a band, a great band, a popular band. We're really at the beginning. We're at the, we're, we're on only two steps up the ladder. Mm-hmm. What do you mean you're leaving the band? And they each had a story about like, Oh, Bo got offered a job at Microsoft as a technical writer. Michael was doing something, writing a thing for somebody. And it was just over. Hmm. And I, and I remember saying like, why did we just practice for two hours? <laughs> right. In that moment. Yeah. And they were like, well, you know, just figured, I mean, in a way it was, they were so lackadaisical that they sort of felt like, yeah, let's practice for a couple of hours and then we'll break up the band. Mm-hmm. Like it, they just were, it just was, it just seemed crazy to me. And you know, the story from that moment on, I went and quit my job. I, I left, I, I, I moved out of my apartment and like two and a half weeks later, I was walking across Europe. Mm-hmm. I left it all. So about two years later, after I'm in Harvey Danger and after I've started, you know, working on the first Long Winter's record, a guy named Chuck Robertson, who was a Harvey Danger friend, who took the photographs that were on the cover of where have all the merrymakers gone? Like Chuck was their roommate and took all those pictures. Chuck came to me and said, the missing long winters record, I'm sorry, the missing Western state hurricanes record is the great record of its time. And the fact that it is, that it never came out is a tragedy. And I want to, I want to see it released. Cause, cause the tools have changed, right? This is only, this is only two years later. Oh, I see what you're saying. And I said, Hmm. the record is garbage. I don't even know where it is. You should leave it alone. It's like somebody wanting to make a release, a boutique, like photo book of you and your ex from a few years earlier. It's like, like, who would buy that? Right. I'm on to a different thing. I don't care about this. I'm, I'm working on a different thing. Mm -hmm. Well, it turned out Scrappy had moved to Texas. Hmm. And had taken the tapes with him. And Chuck was so convinced that this missing record was the secret album that was going to be huge in Australia that he flew to Texas and went to Scrappy. (laughs) And Scrappy said, well, I recorded this record for free on the condition that it be put out. But it never came out. And so if you want this record, you have to buy it from me. Because I put all my blood, sweat, and tears into it. Oh, jeez. And Chuck paid Everybody's him. Everybody's got an angle. Chuck paid him. What? 
5,000 bucks. <clears throat> Holy shit. For an album that I would, that wasn't worth 500 bucks. And he brought it back and he got John Goodmanson, the great mm-hmm. recordist, the great producer. He was a Harvey Danger guy, right? Yep. I mean, you know, producer. He made, he made the Harvey Danger record. He made the Slater Kinney records. He mm-hmm. made, you know, he's a famous dude. And uh, they got two days in the studio. They went in. Uh, they had to find a machine that would play these tapes. <laughs> they spent two days trying to mix this album. And John Goodmanson said, not only is this album unmixable and unlistenable, but it's what broke up the band. Because to make a record that sounds this bad would discourage you mm-hmm. to the point that you wouldn't want to be in a band anymore. Oh, God. And he was right, you know. So the tapes went up on the wall at the Hall of Justice, and they sat there for 10 years. And anytime somebody said, hey, do you want to do anything with those tapes? I was like, you can throw them in the garbage. But nobody ever did. Chris Walla one day was having all the bands come down and take their tapes out of the studio after he took it over. I went down and got them along with a bunch of Long Winter's tapes and other tapes and took them and put them in my mom's basement where they sat for another 10 years. They ended up in a storage space. And last year, a guy named Pete Greenberg called me up and said, the lost Western State Hurricanes record is the great record of its time. (laughs) And I said, I'm afraid you're wrong. It sounds like garbage. And he said, no, I think that it is. I think that it's the missing thing and we need to resurrect it. And I said, here are the tapes. I don't care about them. I don't want to ever hear them again. You will, if you want to put effort into it, you will discover that it is terrible. Pete went and found a machine that would play those tapes, which he had to rent from a museum. (laughs) They took the tapes into a recording studio. Oh, God. They baked them. Mm-hmm. Which means that the tapes were no longer playable, but they if they if you put them in an oven for five hours, you can play them a couple of times. Yeah. I mean you're used to hearing that about like old films or something, right? I mean yeah. that that, that this medium was never meant to be archival. And or or if it was, it had to be in a temperature control. Oh, right. Control it has to be in some room. kind of vault in uh, under Nevada. They they put these tapes into digital computers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody listened to them and said, this is the worst sounding record. We've ever. <laughs> How long till the next one comes along? <laughs> but, but Pete Greenberg called Eric Corson and said, Eric, you're, you know, uh, you're, you're a, a recordist now. If I give you these tapes, is there anything you can do with them? And now we get to the point where computer technology becomes a component because Eric says I can use Michael's drum parts as triggers. Holy shit. Right. To trigger sounds so that Michael's playing is preserved. It's almost like a player. It's like a, a digital player piano. It's hit. It's going to hit samples of John Bonham's drums or Stuart Copeland's drums that have been manufactured. And so basically the drums just create a MIDI pattern of velocity and tempo Mm -hmm. and you assign it to these samples and it plays. 
So I went over to Eric's one day and he called up a song and he played it, but it had these samples in it and you can hear their samples, mm-hmm. but all of a sudden the sound, the songs were alive hmm. because we were a great band and right. the guitars were recorded fine. The guitars were just, you know, 57 onto an amp. They don't need a ton of, uh, resolution, not like bass and drums. And the vocals all sounded fine. Well, so Eric and I listened to a couple of tracks and I'm like, are you telling me that computers can save this unlistenable disaster? And Eric said, yeah, I think so. It's going to, it's going to suck. It's going to be a lot of work. And then Eric said, but I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do this. This is too much work. The, the the capturing from tape or the turning it into making it good? Turning it into making it good. Because it's not just like... So he could, he could provide some updated digital assets that could let somebody do it. But it would be just so much work. Yeah. Because he can't just... It's not just set it and forget it. If it goes... I mean, it's just like this is just the the pessimist and project manager in me would want to ask the question. Yeah, And so if this goes... Not only flawlessly, but 10 times better than we expected, the positive result will be what? Right. So it sat there. And two months ago, I said, you know what? This is as close as this has ever gotten. And if I don't do something now about this, no one ever will again. <laughs> and so I said to Pete Greenberg and to Chuck Robertson and to everybody in the world except Scrappy, who I don't want to talk to, I said, I'm going to just take over this project right now for a second. And I rented a studio with, uh, I, and it was Hall of Justice. And my friend Floyd, who recorded Putting the Days to Bed, uh, he and I went in and we started to see what we could do. And it was a mess. Mm-hmm. But we started adding samples. We started, we, we ran the bass out through a big bass amplifier and put a mic in front of it and recaptured it. Wow. But recorded in a room with a good mic. We started layering samples. After a couple of days at Hall of Justice, we moved over to Litho, where we were, which is Stone Gossard's studio. And we took the sampled drums along with the original recordings and ran them out into the main room through giant speakers and re-recorded the sound of the drums being played <laughs> in a giant room. This is insane. We ran that back in along with the samples and the original drums. Mm-hmm. And then put the drums and bass together out into the room and recorded that back in. And this we, is, uh, to state the obvious, this is creating a much more live sound than what was originally captured. And we're getting it like, and we have the information now. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not perfect, right? Because the drums were recorded so badly that you can only do so much. And 
Michael's playing is so distinctive. You can't just sample in some, it's not just like throw in some beats, you know, his, you have to have his nuance. Mm -hmm. Right. But you can add kick drum, you can add snare, you can add stuff. So I started working on this and, you know, I'm paying modern studio rates. Yeah. But it is incredibly cathartic hmm. because this band comes alive. The, 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 the songs are all there. And these are the songs of the first Long Winters record, except recorded by a, a, this crazy band, this hard rock band where all these songs were, were, where they all originated. And as it comes alive, I'm just sitting in there day after day like, you know, not exactly tears streaming down my face, mm-hmm. but I know now how to listen to this and realize we were a good band. I know what a bass line is now. And I recognize that Bo's bass lines are amazing. Right. I understand what Stephanie was doing now, and I can't believe that she was doing it. I love Michael's drumming. And, and also, I can't believe what I was doing. Like, we were Awesome. So five days into it, I've spent thousands of dollars. Really? And oh, five, six, shit, six days into it. And it is the best thousands of dollars I ever spent. Oh, wow. It's like going on a freaking vacation to 20 years ago. And and in, in a way, getting a do-over. Mm-hmm. So I work on this stuff. Ben Gibbard comes by one day and sits in the studio with me all day listening to songs. And here's what we've done and is bouncing off the walls because this band was formative to him, right? This was the first band he ever went on tour with really. And he's like, it sounds like the band. It sounds like the hurricanes. You know, there's no record of this band really, except for that cassette. Right. So I start, so the, the hurricanes themselves come down one at a time, Bo, Stephanie, Michael, and they sit and listen to the tracks and we start talking. And Bo says, when I broke up that band, I thought that everything I did was going to turn to gold and that I was going to leave the Hurricanes and I was going to start another band and it was also going to be the biggest band in Seattle. And I was, everything I did was going to be a success. But he said, this was actually my peak. I never played this well again. I never was in a band this big again. Um, after I broke up the band, like three months later, I stopped getting invited to parties. Like this was it for me. And I heard it from everybody. Like this was it. So two days ago, I finished the album (laughs) completely mixed. It is 10 songs. Almost all of them you've heard. There's there's one song that is that didn't end up being a long winter song. Um, but they are uh, it's they're a completely different animal. You know, it's a it's a rock band, right. not a studio project. And now I have this album. Wow. This album that in a way is like um I mean it's all these things, it's uh, any fan of the long winters already knows these songs. You've seen these songs played a hundred times mm-hmm. 
And, you know, the, long, the live long winters were a completely different band than the recorded long winters. Also, it's a record of this weird time between rock and indie. And it's a band that no, no, nobody's really ever heard of. And making it was its own reward. But I have a fucking album that I've been kind of busting my ass on. And it sounds amazing. And so I'm in this weird, it's almost like finishing my book about my walk across Europe. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, now it, what? Like, I mean, it's like, it's like getting that diploma in the mail. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, uh, this was, this took me 20 years. Uh, but like playing it for my bandmates, you know, they were crying. It, it, it healed us in a weird way. I didn't, you know, we all felt repaired. <laughs> well, that's interesting. <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, just so many false starts. And the, what's the phrase you used? A vacation to 20 years ago. Yeah. And it, it sounds like, well, I don't know what it sounds like. You tell me what it sounds like. I mean, you know, um, it, yeah. Like, so where does that leave you now? Cause just based on the past two hours and 26 minutes of talking to get to this point, I'm guessing this means more to you than something you'll put into a pretty slipcase and put on the bookshelf or that it's animating something else in you that maybe surprised you. What, uh, what's, what's it mean to you today? Um, I mean, I could ask you the dumb, obvious question. So what are you going to do with it? But I mean, what makes, what does this make you want to do right now that you didn't have the same feeling about a couple months ago, for example? Well, Pete Greenberg wants to put it out and there's a, there's an aspect, there's a, there's a method of this where I will just hand it off to him and he'll, he'll print it on vinyl. Of course he wants to do a, a crowdfunding thing and you know, he wants the crowdfunding thing is all going to come from me, right? He doesn't have any crowdfunding capacity. So I'll be out there like, Hey, I've got this record. If anybody wants to buy it and you can buy it here, click the link type of thing. Right. And so surely we will do that. But I actually went and took some tracks down to a studio yesterday and talked to a recording engineer that I'd never met before, but that is, a contemporary of mine and said like, here's some tracks. What do you think we could do with it? And he said, let's make a record. Hmm. I sent my book off to a girl that I knew that, that was a, a listener to our program, a, a gal I've known for a long time. She came to Seattle this winter. And at one point said, you know, I love Roderick on the line so much and I want to help you so much. And I'm an editor. Mm hmm. Why don't you give me your book and just let me edit it? And I hmm. said, the I said, like the Western State Hurricanes record, the book is garbage. It's just like a long, continuous journal entry stream of consciousness. And she was like, I'm sure it's amazing. Let me just go in and do a really hard edit. I'll just take out all the terrible stuff. And then you'll and then you'll have a jumping off point to like work on the good stories. And I said, sounds good. And I gave it to her. And at the time she said like, well, I won't be able to get to it till March. And I said, no problem. And 
yesterday I sent her a text and I was like, hey, how's that coming? And she wrote me an email and she said, well, unfortunately, the book is not very good. Hmm. And I was like, I know. And she said, uh, I thought that it was going to be full of campfire uh, scabetti party stories, but it's really just a long journal entry. And I was like, right, mm-hmm. I know. And she said, so I'm really not the one to help you. Um, and I was like, oh, 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 okay. Well, thanks, I mm-hmm. guess, you know, like that. And it was, a, it was like a, it's, it's been a week of, of hard lessons, hmm. but, um, but I think the Western state hurricanes record is going to come out. I think it's going to come out on vinyl, hmm. a thing which didn't even exist in 1999. It's, this is the 20 year anniversary of it. Mm-hmm. Also, this is the 20 year anniversary of my walk. Mm-hmm. Like on this day in 1999, I was somewhere in somewhere in the area around Munster having just left Seattle because of the failure of this album that I'm working on. And so the book and the album are both 1999 products. I'm 20 years away from them and I'm thinking about them both and working on them both. And I don't know, I, that doesn't feel like a triumph. You know, that feels like a person stuck, stuck having spent 20 years stuck but I'll tell you what, Merlin, working hmm. on this record, it did not feel like stuck. It felt like it felt like like a strange gift to be able to do it. That's a hell of a week. Yeah. Um does it so if we bracket the very understandable like bits of closure for better or for worse potentially that this represents for you possibly does it also make you like want to make new different how can i put this how does this change what could become your focus in the next few months I realize it's very early, but like, okay, so let me toss it out. Like if I found myself listening to something like that, that I had thought was dead for a long time ago, my first thought might be, oh my God, I really want to go play a live rock show. You know what I'm saying? Like it could be something that's it's slightly more than just like, oh, I want to like put this on the market. Like I could see this making you want to maybe learning that about the book could make you want to say, you know what? I, uh, what if I started by acting like I was writing an article for the Atlantic and that's the thing I want to do. You know what I mean? Like, does it, does it stimulate is it still too early or does it potentially, and you certainly have your big June coming up. What, what does it stimulate in terms of what you might want to, what does it make you want to do? Well, so Stephanie has a, has uh, some kind of debilitating condition now that she f- fears prevents her from playing the guitar. And so when we started talking about doing a show together, a Western state show, she said, I don't think I can play the guitar. I can't hold it. But, but Ben, in listening to the track, said, don't worry, I'll play guitar in the Western State Hurricanes. Send me the tracks, I'll learn all the guitar parts. Wow. So there's a version of the Western State Hurricanes with Ben Gibbard on guitar that is available for shows. Um, I don't know if I want to do, I don't know if I want, I'd, I, certainly, that would be one or two shows, right? There's no market for that anywhere except Seattle on a Saturday night in in 
September. But it's a, it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. The, the, the realization that the book is garbage <laughs> isn't really a, re- a realization. But the idea that you just said, which is like, well, why not? Like, if people like Campfire Spaghetti Scabetti Party, why not start there? Yeah. And write, you know, I'm always, I always wish that our show had, that there was some kind of transcription software that actually would transcribe things. Mm-hmm. But I've told a lot of the stories of my walk on the show mm-hmm. in, yeah. in ways that would be great jumping off points if I just had a transcript to work from. I could, I could figure that out somehow, you know, and, and just not try and work from the manuscript, but just work from memory. Mm-hmm. Do I want to make a new record? Yes, but I'm just as, I'm just as, I love being in the studio. I love making music. I'm just as fucking impacted and, and my insides are just as, as inhibited and fractured as they were six months ago about the prospect of going in with a new song. And partly Merlin, it is that I don't know what I want it to sound like. Yeah. I don't know whether I want it to be a band or a guy with an acoustic guitar yeah. and some strings or a grunge or, you know, I still don't know whether but I, I want it to sound like Billy Gibbons or not. But the, um, this is why I said for better or for worse, some kind of closure, because it's interesting. I mean, like as somebody who's just hearing this now, I mean, uh, and according to this is you're telling of the story, but like on the one hand, there's this thing that you were existentially cockblocked about, uh, for over years and years and years and years, which is like, you knew in 1999 that like, <laughs> this is what major band broke up and break up in some ways. It was like, okay, this thing is shit. We can't do anything with it. There's nothing to be done to this. You've had those other things come up over time. So, you know, I mean, to get to a point where you listen to it, your bandmates listen to it, you know, um, and everybody's excited about it. So that's one that was unresolved that certainly turned out kind of cool and interesting and like promising because it, there could be worlds of different worlds of possibility that come out of that. I can imagine five or six different things you might choose to do in this near to medium term, term as a result of that going positively and on the other hand you get your news from the editor person about the book but that's another kind of closure the, the closure the closure in that case is like in some way the one that's much more dangerous is the western state hurricanes record in some ways like the one that's actually like really promising in some ways is the book like for that book thing to be like you you thought in some part of your head all along oh yeah i think this sucks it'd be nice to get an out of boy out of this and instead you didn't get an out of boy and you got a hmm you know I don't know. I'm not the person for this, right? Yeah. Um, that's kind of closure in some ways. And holy shit, like, can, can't that be kind of a relief, you know, in, in some ways? And like, who knows what this kind of stuff could stimulate in you? It's interesting. It must feel like a perilous time. I mean, like, uh, having possibilities in, in your life can seem strange and foreign. It's, it's part of living my life without ever having a plan or a target or a goal is that these things that don't get finished, they're, they're these boat anchors. But if they were all finished, you know, the losing the college degree as an unfinished thing and putting it into the finished camp mm-hmm. did exactly what I thought it would, which is for a few weeks I was like, huh. Hmm. And now it's just like, oh yeah. Like I, I, I don't have the ability really to feel triumph 
or I've never allowed it, or I just don't have it. You know, I can't be, it's very hard for me to be proud. And so these things are done. If they get done, I'll be like, wow, for a little bit. But in a way, maybe I don't, I mean, I'm afraid to not have any albatross or or any boat (laughs) anchors. Right, right. But but also like just float into the sky. I never, ever, ever felt the feeling that I felt finishing this Western state record, which was that some psychic damage got repaired. It's like a thing. I, I, I always go back to my old girlfriends at some point and say like, Hey, um, you know, and I'm not trying to hook up with them. I'm legitimately like, Hey, a lot of time has gone by just hoping that like we could be friends or that we could sit down together and review our relationship and maybe come up with some answers or, some reason that it still feels bad to me because it still feels bad and I wish it didn't. And I would like you to tell me that I was okay or that you understand or that you're fine now or something that we could sit there and maybe cry or just go through it again, but in a way where we are older now and better. And you know, 99% of the time, the, uh, the person I'm seeking that from goes, no, thanks. Mm-hmm. And I go, really? You don't, I know you feel bad. I feel bad. You, there's nothing, you don't think anything could be gained by just like, I don't know, just, just getting a chance to remix that record somehow. Like, I like, believe me, I don't want to get into a thing with you. I'm just trying to f- solve this hurt. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to do it. And 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 so I carry around all this luggage of hurt. Uh, and this was a big luggage of hurt that I, I finally got to unpack. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my book is also, it's the same. It's just a big bag of hurt. And the hurt is both in the book and also in the fact that the book never got completed and in every attempt I made to complete it just added more hurt to the bag instead of ever getting uh, taking it out. And so the only thing that can, that can release that hurt is, I mean, I don't know what it is. People tell me that what it is, is to forget it, to take the book and throw it on a fire. But I don't feel like that would unpack the hurt. I feel like the only way to do it is to finish it somehow and this hurricanes record it just it feels like that it feels like if this thing makes it all the way out and comes out and and people either applaud or don't i won't feel any pride past about three weeks out it will immediately be like huh yeah just as i feel about all my records like yeah i mean i did those things could have been better or whatever, but I won't feel that. I won't feel that pain. Like the long winters records. I don't feel any hurt about the things that they missed. You know, they are what they are and they could have been different, but they aren't. I don't, there's no bag associated with them. This record just coming out in any capacity will like, so much pain will drain out of me. And I've never lived a day pain-free. Mm-hmm. 
have no idea what that would be like. I don't even, I, I, that's a weird goal. Um, that was never a goal until I just said it. Mm-hmm. Huh. And then maybe I would make up, start a new record. I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. I'd send some tracks to Amy Mann. I mean, you know, I don't know, Merlin. What am I here for? Why are we on this earth? 